Welcome to the Taste and See podcast, a kingdom-based podcast that exists to encourage saints, empower believers, and reach the lost with the goodness of God. Psalm 34, 8 proclaims, Taste and see that the Lord is good. To taste is to experience, while to see is all about perception. Join us as we discuss our experiences in the kingdom of God and discover how we can impact the world around us through a new lens. Here is your host, Josh Emmerich. Hey, friend, and welcome to episode 18 of the Taste and See podcast, where we ask the questions people are afraid to ask and address the issues people are afraid to tackle. Today, we're sitting down with Scott Disler, lead pastor of the E-Free Church in Gaylord and Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. Scott, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I'm excited to have you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So as you know, I'm from Michigan. I'm a Michigander, and I know that you are currently serving there. So I like to start off the episode with a fun question, you know, a fun debate. But for you, I'm going to do something a little different. And I think not only myself and some of the listeners, but I think the people in your congregations are going to get a kick out of this. So we're going to play some Michigan trivia. Does that sound good to you? Now, just know I'm not a native from Michigan. So, you know, but I'll do my best. Where are you from originally? I'm originally from Ohio, so I'm I'm a Buckeye at heart living up here among the Philistines in Michigan. So if you crash and burn during this trivia, some of these Michiganders might actually celebrate. (laughs) There's truth to that. There's truth to that. All right. Number one, you ready? Let's do it. What is the state motto? The state motto of Michigan. Um, I think the state motto of Michigan is beat the Buckeyes at all costs, but Other than that, I I couldn't tell you. Well, the official state motto is if you seek a pleasant peninsula, look about you. But I would, I'm still going to give you credit because you got the unofficial motto correct, 100%. Question number two Which of the five Great Lakes does not connect to Michigan? I'm going to go with Lake Erie. Interesting. Why is that? Well, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I know it's over by um, Northeast Ohio because that's where I used to live. I know it's not the two right up here where I live, you know, so. Right. So Lake Erie actually touches just south of Detroit. Lake Ontario is the only great lake that doesn't touch Michigan. It's over the border in Canada. Okay. Okay. This one I'm sure you will know. What is the common nickname for people from the Upper Peninsula? They, those are Upers. That's right. And for those of you who are listening and not sure why we call it a Uper, because the Upper Peninsula's abbreviation is UP. So up or UP. And so we call them Upers. Here's the next question. What is the common nickname for people from the Lower Peninsula? Well, if you live up in the UP, uh, you often call those under the bridge a troll. Ding, ding, ding. Absolutely. 100%. Number five, Michigan is home to what well-known cereal company? Um, I believe that that would be Kellogg's. That's right. Kellogg's Cereal Company is in Southwest Michigan in Battle Creek. And here is the last and final question specifically for you, because I just want to hear you say it. <laughs> what was Michigan's first university? Um, I, 
I, I, I'm going to say it's the University of M. Of M? Yeah. Because, okay. I, you know, as a Buckeye, I got to be careful that I don't say everything. I know. Well, typically, they would say the University of Michigan. Yeah. The, you know, they, they like to admit all those M's. And so, true. you know, true. I serve at a church right now where our lead pastor is from Ohio, and he's a huge Buckeyes fan. And so... He hassles me all the time during football season by omitting all those M's. <laughs> so you did, you did pretty good. You did pretty yeah, good. Yeah, I got the majority of them at least. Yeah. So pat yourself on the back. You actually did really, really well. So for those of you who are listening from either Pastor Scott's congregations or you live in Michigan, this man is not doing too bad. You know, we won't hold where he's from against him, but. You know, the uh, Lord can work in miraculous ways, and we're seeing God doing some great things. So, congratulations. <laughs> That's awesome. So, Scott, tell us about you. How did you grow up, and how did you come to know Christ, and what led you to serving as a pastor? Oh, that's great. I love telling that story. I, I, was, I was born and raised in Akron, Ohio, and uh, my, uh, my grandpa was a pastor, and so we grew up in church. And even as a small child, I would go every single Tuesday afternoon to a good news club taught by my aunt. And I went literally every Tuesday afternoon as, as a five-year-old child. And I think I went primarily because of the punch and cookies, but I went and I heard my aunt tell the gospel story every single week. And I, I think I probably heard it so many times I could have told it every bit as good as she did. But I'll never forget that one week as a five-year-old child sitting in that living room, listening to my aunt tell that story again, that it dawned on me. I knew the story, but I had never made a personal decision to trust Jesus as my savior. And that was the day I made my commitment to Christ as a five-year-old child at that good news club in Akron, Ohio. And, and then by my junior high years, I was really feeling a pull to be a pastor. And that got confirmed for me my junior year of high school when the pastor at my church asked me to preach the sunrise service on Easter Sunday morning. And I'm not sure if he saw something in me or it's because I was dating his daughter at the time, but nonetheless, he asked me to do it. And that Sunday, I saw people come to know Jesus. And from that day on, there was nothing else I wanted to do but to be a preacher. And that desire has literally grown every single day over the 35 years I've been in full-time ministry. Thank you for sharing that. And I kind of wonder if it was because you were dating his daughter or if maybe it's because he didn't want to get up that early. Well, there may have been a whole lot of reasons. I'm just glad he gave me that opportunity because that really nailed it down in my life. You know, I've served as a lead pastor and I've served as a youth and worship pastor. And just kind of a funny side note, they always call the Sunday of New Year's weekend National Youth Pastor Preaching Day because <laughs> most lead pastors get through the season of Advent in the holiday season and they're like, uh, uh, nope, I, I'm, I need a break. You preach. And so, uh, you know, I kind of wonder if it's the same thing where he was like, you know, I need a break. You preach. <laughs> so, Very well, it could have been. Who knows? <laughs> so here you are serving in northern Michigan. And, you know, most people think that 
being a pastor is easy. You know, all you have to do is just love on people, smile, prepare a message and preach it every Sunday. You have to perform weddings and unfortunately, you know, where you have to speak at funerals. But ministry is so much more than that. And one of the things that I learned when I was going for my undergrad in ministry was my professors would always talk about the trenches of ministry. And I didn't really get it. I'm like, what do you mean trenches of ministry? You're making it sound like it's a war and it's a battle. And isn't ministry supposed to be this joyful thing? And I learned just my first year within ministry that, you know, we are a broken person serving and loving broken people who are dealing with broken things and broken events. And so there's times where it feels like you're in the midst of the battle and you're in the trench and you just need people beside you. You walked through something similar and you wrote about it in your newest book, The Cave, When Ministry Becomes Misery. So what is the cave? What do you mean by when you talk about the cave and how does someone find themselves in it? Yeah, and uh, I think anyone who's been in ministry long enough probably has the wounds to show for it. And uh, for me, I was pastoring back in Pennsylvania, it was probably you know about 12 years ago, and I had been there for 5 years and things were going amazingly well. The church had tripled in size and and then suddenly almost overnight, to be honest, I still can't pinpoint what changed it. But the guy in the church who was the most influential lay person in the church suddenly turned against me. Now, up until that time, he'd been my greatest cheerleader, but suddenly he turned against me. And that's when a lot of accusations started and secret meetings started and plotting started. And I began to see all of this happening. And I ended up kind of reverting back into what I metaphorically called the cave. It's that place where ministry becomes misery. And I wasn't the first person to find the cave. If you look back in the Old Testament, you have the prophet Elijah. And one day he's on top of Mount Carmel, calling down fire from God, huge victory. And the next chapter, he's in a cave going, God, just kill me. And for him, it was a similar thing. One person opposed him. Now, in his case, her name was Jezebel. Now, what I found as I went through that time, I took steps into that cave. And those steps included, first of all, fear. What was going to happen to me? What was going to happen to my ministry? Was I going to lose my ministry? My kid was in college. How would I pay for that then? And then that fear turned to isolation. I pulled away from everyone because I became very suspicious of everyone. I thought everyone was against me. And if two people were talking, I kind of assumed they were talking about me. And that led to a state of hopelessness. And for about a year-long time frame, almost, I spent that year of ministry in the cave. I wasn't out in the foyer greeting people. I wasn't making the hospital visits all those things I love to do. Instead, I was in the cave waiting to see what would happen. And I think most any pastor who's felt that hurt or betrayal has experienced that cave. And not just pastors, I think even people who aren't in ministry have experienced that cave because of just that, that hurt and betrayal that often comes from someone else. Wow, that's 
that's deep and that's profound and that's deeply wounding. It sounds like, you know, when you're talking about thinking that everyone is against you, that you become suspicious and hopeless. And, you know, I just want to mention this too, that sometimes we even, I know that I've experienced hurtship through something, someone I call, and I heard it somewhere before, a well-intentioned dragon, someone who just means well, or they think they mean well, that they think they mean well, but in reality, they're really causing harm. And so it sounds like when you're talking about being suspicious and feeling like everyone's against you and feeling hopeless, I think this is something that everyone, even people who aren't in ministry, probably walk through. I think it is too. And when we get into that state, Josh, what happens is we begin to tell ourselves stories. So we'll see two people talking and we'll tell ourselves a story and we'll convince ourselves that they're talking about us. And now we begin to respond not based on reality, but based on the story we've told ourselves. Or someone will make a comment and they mean it totally innocent, but we tell ourselves a story. Well, here's what they really meant. Now we begin to respond to them, not based on reality, but based on the story that we told ourselves. And when we begin to do that, we make our situation worse and we literally go deeper and deeper and deeper into the cave. That's really interesting about how you mentioned you go deeper and deeper because I think it was Stephen Covey who mentioned in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People to Seek Understanding. And I think sometimes we find ourselves in situations where we don't necessarily seek understanding of what someone meant, and that pulls us in deeper and deeper. So here we are, we're in deep within this cave. We are so deep that we can't even see the light outside. It's dripping water all around us. It's humid. It's cold. It's still a little stuffy. What practical steps can we take to get out of here? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's really what the main part of my book is about, the practical steps to help get out of the cave. And for me, it started with realizing I needed to get help. I wasn't going to get out of the cave on my own. Okay, Just good intentions and willpower wasn't going to do it. And that included for me two things. First, I needed to share everything with my wife. Now, my wife knew at this point things were not great, but she didn't know exactly all that I had been carrying. And I needed to let her know all of these things. And that was a huge turning point for me because, you know, back in the book of Genesis, we learned that when two people get married, they become one flesh. I almost kind of like to say it's like they become a two-headed monster. Now they do life together. And that was the turning point for me when I had somebody to walk with me as I started the steps to get out of the cave. But I also knew I needed help deeper than that because during that time, I had my very first panic attack. I never had one before. I had talked to people who had, but I had it. And it scared me to the point that I knew at that point, I needed also a good professional Christian counselor who understood ministry. And God led me to a wonderful man who allowed me to work with me on making sure my thinking was correct. So getting help for me was one of the first steps. The second step for me was learning to pray specifically. And and I'll just give you a couple examples. I had watched so many people in my ministry career go through this type of thing And they end up either losing their marriage or walking away from ministry or sometimes even walking away from Jesus. And so my wife and I began every day to pray this prayer. 
And that was, God, when this is over, whatever that looks like, our prayer is we'll be more in love with you, more in love with each other, and more in love with the local church than we are today. And by God's grace, he honored that prayer. And I can honestly tell you now, 12 years removed from my cave experience, I'm more in love with God today. I'm more in love with my wife today. And I am more in love with the local church, even though the greatest hurt of my life came from the local church. So those are two of the practical steps that God used to help me take steps out of the cave. So what about forgiveness? And you touch on this in your book in chapter eight, and you mention that when we don't really have a true understanding of what it means to forgive, we grow up hearing the same definition. To forgive means that you forgive and you forget. Not only is that not biblical, it is impossible. But you do something very interesting. You tie in the definition of forgiveness to 1 Corinthians 13, which is what we know as the great love chapter. Can you just talk about that a little bit more? Sure. In 1 Corinthians 13, one of the 18 characteristics about love that's seen there is the one that says, love keeps no record of wrongs. And it's a wording that literally means to write in a ledger. So it's saying this, love doesn't keep a mental list of how people have hurt me so that I can use it against them. And I believe that's the definition of true forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't forgetting. We we can't do that. I don't forget. Forgiveness is saying, even when I remember, and even when I'm tempted to use that against the person to kind of get some revenge, I'm going to choose not to. That's forgiveness. I don't keep a mental record of what people have done wrong in order to use it against them in the future. One of the books that my wife was reading right before I entered the cave was a book by R.T. Kendall called Total Forgiveness. And in this book, he made a great statement. He said, when we share the story of how we were hurt over and over just to get people on our side, we make it harder to forgive. And that helped my wife and I to say, as we go through this, we're only going to share the details of how we were hurt with people who need to know. We're not going to share it just with anybody trying to get them on our side, because the more you do that, the tougher it is to really forgive. That's good. It kind of reminds me of Jesus's ministry himself, how he was very intentional and who he spoke to and who he ministered to. Sure, he had love and compassion for all, but he was very intentional in what he said and what he did. So for those of you who are listening, when someone does you wrong, when you look at them and you just ignore it and say, ah, it's okay, karma will catch up with them. That's not really forgiving. Would you agree? Absolutely. That's not forgiveness at all. When we actually want to see bad things happen to the person that forgave us and we get joy in that, that's going to be one of the greatest evidences that not only have we not forgiven, we've allowed bitterness to take root in our heart. And that's why Jesus said we're to pray for our enemies, we're to love our enemies, we're to do good to our enemies. And so if all we want to do is to see, quote unquote, karma come back on them, that's a really good sign we're going into the route of bitterness. Mm. So what would you say to someone who may be listening right now 
and they're feeling really ashamed and embarrassed and they're scared to reach out because they're afraid that they're going to be judged for the misery that they're experiencing or the conflict that they're experiencing and they're finding it hard to forgive. They're basically, in a nutshell, feel like it makes them look like a weak Christian. What would you say to someone who is really hesitant to reach out and get some help and find someone to walk alongside them? Yeah, I understand that completely because I remember being there. I remember thinking to myself, how could I ever be a pastor again? What church would ever want me to be their pastor when I've gone through what I've gone through here and the stories that were being told and all that stuff? And I remember thinking maybe it would be better just to kind of close up, leave ministry, do my own thing. I remember the first time I went to McDonald's and was envious of the guy behind the counter and his job because it's like, that's the kind of job I want right now, not the church world. But here's what I learned. I learned that for me to get out of the cave, it had to start with a step of faith. Without faith, the Bible says, it's impossible to please God. I had to take a step and I had to trust God for the result. And I always say this, control what you can control, leave what you can't control to God. I can control if I'm going to take that step. I can't control how people are going to respond. I'm going to leave that to God. Instead, I'm going to control what I can control. I'm going to take that step, that step of faith, believing that every time we take a step of faith, It pleases God, God honors that, and God responds. I love that. It's hard to give away control. It's hard to admit when we're not in control, but it's even harder to give it away. That's so good. Thank you for that reminder. I found myself in that situation a lot when I've worked through various seasons of my life where it was very shaky because, I mean, let's be real. That's the life of a Christian. It's not going to be smooth sailing. Sure, we have God no matter what we go through, but it doesn't mean that our journey and our path and our adventure is going to be smooth sailing. That's why the Taste and See podcast logo, it reflects the life of a Christian. There are mountains, there are valleys, there is water, there is a river, it gets turbulent at times. We go through those white water seasons where we have to adjust and to really surrender things to God. Yeah, you know, when I think about that, I think about the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. I write a little bit about that in my book, because here's a guy, uh, his wasn't a cave, it was a pit. He was thrown into the pit of betrayal. And, and a lot of people say, yeah, but he ended up in the palace. Well, the truth is it got worse before it got better because he went from the pit to the prison before he ever ended up in the palace. But as you go through his whole story over and over and over again, you will see this phrase in the Bible, but God was with Joseph, but God was with Joseph, but God was with Joseph in the pit, in the prison, in the palace, God was with Joseph. And to me, that was a huge thing in my life during that time to say, I can take this step of faith because I know God is with me and I know God will honor that. So what would you say to someone who is listening right now, who is in the midst of a season of misery and feel like they're deep in a hole with no way out? What I'm really asking you is, what is one action step or challenge that you want us to walk away with this week? What is our call to action? I like this. And and here's what the biggest one for me was. And that's this. You look for the fingerprints of God. Now, here's what I mean by that. 
when my wife and I were going through this cave experience, every night, the end of the day, we'd make a cup of coffee, we'd sit down on the back porch, and we would answer this question. How did we see the fingerprints of God today? And by that, I mean, how did we see evidence that God was at work in our life, that God hadn't abandoned us, that God was working in spite of the hurt and the trials that we were feeling? And we began to write those down. And it was amazing as we kept this journal of here's how we saw God's fingerprints today. And sometimes it was something really small. Sometimes it was something really big. I remember the one night we were sitting on the back porch drinking our cup of coffee and we couldn't think of one that day. It was the very first day we could not think of one. And as we were talking, there was a knock at the door. I went to the front door and here's a pastor from across town. I knew who he was. I had never had a conversation with him. And he said to me, Scott, I heard what you're going through and God just prompted me to come over. Can I just have two minutes to pray with you? And we thought, wow, what a fingerprint. And when we began to see those fingerprints of God, it gave us confidence that we could trust him. And that was the key element. You're not going to take steps of faith if you don't trust God. And to trust God, I need to see his working in my life. So I would say to you, begin to look for the fingerprints of God in your life and let that give you confidence that God is with you and you can trust him and take a step of faith. So remember, folks, he said, look for the fingerprints of God, not wait for the fingerprints of God, because we know that God's there. God is faithful and he will bring them. But you need to take the time to really look around and look. I know that I will certainly start doing that for now on. Thank you for that wisdom. Pastor Scott, if someone would like to connect with you or your ministry or to get a hold of your book, The Cave, how can they do so? Well, they can contact me directly through my email address through our church. And they also, as far as getting the book, you're not going to find it at your local bookstore, obviously, but it's available on Amazon. It's available on Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. I'm sure even your local bookstore could find it for you. It's not a long book, only 140 pages, and it's really geared to help give hope and to help give help to people who feel like they're in the cave because they've been hurt or because they've been betrayed. So again, feel free to email me. That's Scott D at myefree.org, M-I-E-F-R-E-E.org. You can look me up on Facebook, send me a message, or our church website, which is eFree Church, Gaylord, Michigan. You can contact me that way as well. Thank you so much for sharing that specific information. And I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about this specific topic, because I think that, you know, when we think of misery, it's not just events with people who are close to us or people that we serve, whether it's in ministry or clients or our customers in a non-ministry job, but even the state of political tension that we're in as a country causes a lot of people misery on both sides of the aisle. And so I think this was just a very timely and a very good topic to talk about looking for the fingerprints of God in the midst of everything even the things that we don't enjoy, really taking time to seek to understand and forgiveness and just trusting God. I think that's so key and that's so good. Well, friend, that wraps up this conversation with Pastor Scott Disler. If you would like to connect with Scott or purchase his book, 
You can find all of his links by scrolling down through the story notes or by visiting www.tasteandseepodcast.com and clicking on the guest page. Pastor Scott, thank you so much for spending some time with us and for sharing your personal experience and wisdom. Thank you for listening to the Taste and See podcast. We hope that you were encouraged and empowered by our conversation today. For future and past episodes, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by visiting www.tasteandseepodcast.com. Now go, live for the kingdom, and always remember that the Lord is good.